0: Eric, we're aware that you've written over 40 books, some of which are on creativity and some, I believe, are on other topics. Of those 40-plus books, is there one or two that stands out the most in terms of the feedback that you receive from artists on how helpful those books have been for them? And if so, what is that feedback?
1: Yeah, actually, there are a couple that seem to stand out. One is The Van Gogh Blues, which is about... Existential sadness and and the creative life, a lot of people seem to resonate with the idea that if they're not doing meaningful work, they're not actually feeling emotionally well. And a lot of the so-called depression out there, which is a pseudo-medical sounding diagnosis, depression is really sadness and despair around not having the opportunity to do meaningful work or if given the opportunity, how that opportunity often turns into less than meaningful or certainly a a Hollywood challenge where maybe you get the gig, but then so many hands stir that pot that the ultimate film doesn't feel as meaningful as it might have. So the Van Gogh Blues is one book that people seem to like, that artists seem to like. And another is a book called Coaching the Artist Within, where I go over eight or 10 or 12, I can't quite remember, important lessons and tell some vignette-stories about clients I've worked with. So I would say those are the two books that uh, maybe I get the most feedback on.
0: Interesting. Do you think most artists are essentially afraid of failure or afraid of success?
1: If I had to give percentages, I would say 92% are afraid of failure and uh, 8% 8% are afraid of success, and those are joke numbers, of course. But <laughs> sure, sure. Mostly people are afraid of failing. Sometimes they're afraid of the kinds of work that goes with success, like interviews or paparazzi or, or, or not being able to be a sort of secluded, secretive person any longer. So there are some challenges with success that folks do sometimes worry about, but I do think that it's the fear of failure that's most prevalent.
0: Eric, turning to your own work, I'm curious, how, how successful was, was your first book?
1: Golly, first book, where, does, where do we go back there? <laughs> well, um, you know, we're talking probably 45 years ago now, uh, which is a while. <laughs> um, my first books, No One Wanted. And because I was a an arrogant, narcissistic, grandiose young man, when somebody would tell me what I would need to do in order to get a book published, I would tell them to go someplace. <laughs> uh so it took a long time for um me to have any success. I had a ghostwriting career which was very interesting, where you could give me the title of a book and I would write you a book on that subject. Didn't matter what didn't matter what the title was, didn't matter what the book was. And so for many years, um, I was churning out books on all kinds of oddball subjects. Some of which were were quite successful, although I didn't make any money from them because they were uh, for hire gigs. So I would get a certain amount up front, and then that's all I would see on it. I would say probably I was in. I was. It wasn't until I was in my mid 40s that the nonfiction started to be successful, and my first nonfiction book was called Staying Sane in the Arts, and that did uh, fairly well, and then the book that followed it, a book called Fearless Creating, did quite well. So that's that's a long answer to a short question, and the long answer is I think probably with Fearless Creating, that was my first real success.
0: Interesting. So I, I think at some point within that time, though, you became uh, a therapist, and and did you then go back and look at some of your own ups and downs in life from that therapeutic model and and come up with sort of this creativity coaching? How did that work?
1: Not, not so much that way. Um, I started out as a novelist. At some point in my early 30s, because I wasn't making enough money as a novelist, I retooled and became a California licensed family therapist. As I was in training for that, I had the opportunity at a counseling center to, to run a series called uh, something like Growth and Healing Through the Arts or something. I can't remember what it was called, but it gave me the opportunity to bring in folks from the community, from the San Francisco Bay Area community, who I thought maybe were working with artists on their issues. It, that turned out not to be the case. I didn't understand the lingo back then as a beginning therapist. So I would bring in art therapists and other folks. And, and what I discovered was that nobody was really working on artist issues or working specifically with creative and performing artists. This was before the artist's way. This was a long time ago. And so I realized that I had a niche there if I wanted it. I could focus on working with creative and performing artists as a therapist. And that's what I did. I, started, I probably started doing the hardest work in the world, which was working with artist couples in therapy. <laughs> There may be nothing harder than that. Right. (laughs) Funny. But but that's when I began understanding um, artist issues deeply was in working with creative folks. It wasn't so much sort of reflecting on my own journey, but rather sitting across from folks with challenges and beginning to deeply understand those challenges the more I worked with clients over the years. And I've been doing this now for a very long time. can't even remember 30 plus years. So that's a lot of experience working with a lot of folks
0: and and for yourself, how much of your own advice do you apply to yourself uh when when maybe you're working through something that you'd rather put off and you employ some of your own techniques? As close to a hundred percent as I can pull off <laughs> I,
1: I I believe in the advice I give, great. Um, I believe that if we don't do our work in a regular way, if we don't maintain a creativity practice, whatever that means for us, that weeks and months can slip by um, unnoticed. One of the biggest challenges for a creative person is that when they skip two or three days of their work, suddenly a year has gone by, they don't even know where it went. So I try to maintain my regularity and routine. I consider those sort of sacred words, regularity and routine, and scheduling, and planning, and all of those things. I completely believe in the word process. It's probably the most important word in my vocabulary. I know that I can't know things before I know them. If I'm starting out on a book, I can't really know what the book's about until I try to write the book and find out what it's about. So I believe in the reality, and I would say even the elegance of process, or the truth of process. So to make this answer a little shorter, I, I try to follow my own advice.
0: what What is your process when it comes to your writing?
1: Well, it's pretty straightforward in the sense that the, the number one thing is showing up. And I try to show up every day to my work. And by every day, I mean every day because I don't think that we don't have meaning needs on the weekends. I, I think we need to maintain meaning and our emotional well-being by working all the time, so I try to get to my work seven days a week. That's the main part of process. And the other main part of process is to not attach to outcomes. I'm really not worried about how the world will react to things. I'm not really worried about whether something will be wanted. I'm not in control of that. All I can do is A, my work, and then B, the marketing of my work. I do believe it's in my power to influence the reception of my work by being a smart marketer, by having and making connections, by being pleasant rather than arrogant, etc. So I believe in those two things as parts of process, namely showing up to the work and then showing up to the marketing of the work.
0: So I want to go back to your, um, I think it's 2007 book, uh, The Van Gogh Blues, Mm -hmm. and just talk a little bit more about the existential depression that you see a lot of creative people experience and I think i would heard you say before that that a lot of it's from wanting to put out something very like culturally relevant, very life-changing for a lot of people out in the world, and and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Is that right? Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a complicated business, So so let me try to tease out some headlines. Great. First of all, it's important to understand what meaning is, and for me, my understanding of what meaning is, is that it's a certain kind of psychological experience. It's not something objective out there. The universe has no particular purpose for us, or the universe universe has no particular meaning. It's more that meaning is a certain kind of psychological experience, which we can influence and try to provoke into being. And I have a lot of language around this about seizing meaning opportunities and making meaning investments. That's all by way of saying that there isn't one thing and one thing only that provokes the psychological experience of meaning in us. Creative people tend to not know that or forget that. And they often feel like it's only their creative work that can give them the experience of meaning. They don't actually have a robust enough menu of meaning opportunities. And so if their acting life isn't working or their filmmaking life isn't working, they're down, they're depressed, they're sad, maybe even despairing, Because they don't have enough of the experience of meaning in their life because they haven't realized that they have to make other kinds of meaning investments in life also. Like in relationships or in service or we could name a whole array of things that also amount to meaning opportunities. So one of the, let's call it errors, mental mistakes that a creative person can make is to put all of his or her meaning eggs into the creativity basket. We have too many, too, too many cases, too many instances, the creative folks who have been creative, wildly creative, and still commit suicide mm-hmm. because being creative hasn't produced enough meaning in their life. Van Gogh pops to mind, but we could name all kinds of people who have been successful at their art, but not also experiencing life as meaningful. So that's one of the headlines in the Van Gogh Blues is that, yes, we need the experience of meaning. We need it desperately. But we don't need to only get it from our creative life. There are other places we can get it from if we begin to point ourselves in that direction. If we create, literally create, right out a menu of meaning opportunities and see how many different kinds, how many disparate things might produce the experience of meaning in us then we have a better way of living our life, where we can say on a given day, "Well, I have no auditions today, but that doesn't mean this day is worthless. That doesn't mean this day is meaningless. I can also do A, B, and C today, and create some meaning today. And I don't have to write this day off as meaningless just because I have no auditions today."
0: Wow, that's excellent advice. Yeah, I, you definitely see that in in Los Angeles, where where people have such tunnel vision, and that's great that that. They live and breathe whatever it is that they're chasing, and and then when that doesn't happen for them, uh, the downs are, are are fairly. I mean, they're they're really low. Um, I don't know if you see that in the Bay Area too with some of the tech people. I mean, it's a different different uh, pursuit, but it's still there's a creativity to all that. Um, have have you seen that also in the tech world where people put all of their eggs in that basket as well and and then don't find meaning in other things?
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the um, high crises or big challenges of of our technological revolution is all the loneliness that people are experiencing. They might be texting all day and they have five trillion Facebook friends and four billion Twitter followers and they're all lonely. So that's one of the, the downsides of being a creative person in the tech world is that you can't throw yourself into the next app or the next technical problem to solve and have no life. In fact, my daughter has a book coming out called, and she's in the tech world, called Stop Being Lonely. Oh, nice. That's coming out uh, in, in the spring. And that's her focus is on how one can have a thousand Facebook friends or what have you, and everybody's experiencing loneliness more significantly than ever before. So that's absolutely a challenge in the tech world. But I would say all creative people... Um, experience that particular challenge where they don't actually end up making enough meaning from their work. Their work doesn't provide enough meaning. It, It may sometimes provide substantial and even amazing meaning, but it can be very intermittent. You know, if you're a performer, let's say you have 33 gigs a year. That's a lot, but that means that there are 330 days when you're not performing. And unless you're careful, those can feel like meaningless days. So whatever your art is, whether it's visual arts or writing or performing or acting, whatever it is, these same challenges apply of having to be smart about how to make additional meaning in addition to the meaning that you can make from your creative pursuits.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Um, what if someone is so blind to their own meaningful, you know, what, what if they don't know they're, they're what brings... drink in... a lot of scotch, is what
1: they need to
0: do. <laughs> right. But but in terms of, like, how do they discover what does have meaning? Maybe they don't know it yet. Maybe it's, it's still to be sort of, you know, found other than their creative pursuit. How do they uncover that in themselves?
1: They, they let go of the language you just used. There's a paradigm shift needed from seeking meaning or finding meaning to making meaning. Ah. Oh. And you just used the, the language that we've used for thousands of years. It, it's, the, uh, it's, it's the metaphor that most people use, the finding meaning or searching out meaning metaphor. It's time to stop with that. There's no meaning to find. Uh-huh. There are decisions to make about life purposes. There are decisions about how we want to represent ourselves in life, what will make, ourso- what will make us proud of our efforts. So to repeat this simply, there's nothing to find, there's meaning to make. And so the activity is stopping. That's the activity. It's not searching. Hmm. It's stopping everything and making decisions about what to try, what meaning opportunities to seize, what meaning investments to make, all without having any guarantees that you'll actually experience meaning from your efforts because you can't know that beforehand. So maybe you'll want to try, you know, volunteering at a shelter or writing a nonfiction book or whatever it might be that you might want to try in an effort to make meaning, you have to just go about and try it and see if you actually experience it as meaningful. So that's what I suggest to folks is that there's nothing to find, nothing to search for. What you have to do is stop and think through what might work as a meaning opportunity and then seize it and then see if it does work.
0: So it's like that carrot kind of dangling. Don't, don't keep trying to find happiness and all that. Create it. But, but the more yeah, you try...
1: I mean, characteristically, what happens if you do that is that you're a Buddhist for two years and then you're, you go back to your Judaism for two years and then you eat spinach for two years. You keep looking for something Sorry. that's going to provide meaning rather than stopping and saying, there's nothing out there to search for. There are only my decisions to make about my life purposes.
0: Wow, fascinating! You know, many of our Film Courage viewers of our, our videos or listeners of our podcast are filmmakers or writers or actors. And one thing we definitely hear from our audience is they they put so much into a film. They spend a lot of money, either their own or an investor or their family helps them, and then they get stuck around the point of distribution with the film. And it didn't either, uh, you know, maybe perform as well as they had wanted, or there's issues with the distributor. And some of them stay in limbo and they get stuck and, and they feel this, still this burning desire to make these movies, but they're very frustrated with the, the process or, or the, the process beyond making the film. Can you give me any advice to our uh, listeners on when they get to that sort of uh, point where they've done their creative work, but then putting out in the world has really put up some walls for them?
1: What you've described is the rule. That's the rule. The thing you just described is what usually happens. What that means is that each filmmaker has to prove the exception. They can't prove the rule. Mm. Most walks of life, all you have to do is prove the rule. If you're, you know, working for the federal government, you have to do exactly as much as the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you. No more, (coughs) no less. That's how you you get along. (laughs) To be a filmmaker, you have to prove the exception. So if the filmmaker to the left of you and the filmmaker to the right of you is sending out three emails a day to get distribution. You send out 3,000. You have to do more. And that's the headline about success is doing everything that everybody else is doing, plus also doing exceptional things that other people are not thinking about. Ultimately, it's about the gods of whimsy, right? Ultimately, there's there's a, there's a an element of luck involved that's that's unfortunate because there's nothing anyone can do about that. That's you crossing the street and, and running into a famous filmmaker whom you trip. And as he's falling, he hands you a contract or something. You know, there are all of these stories of accidents and accidental meetings and what have you. But none of that can be orchestrated. Sorry. All you can do is prove the exception. And that means things like approaching more people than you may feel comfortable approaching, pestering people going to more events, doing more things, etc. It is preposterous that we first have to work so hard on making a thing and then work so hard on selling the thing. That's preposterous. It's unfair. But the universe is not fair. And so that's what we must do. We must do all the work of making the thing and then all the work of selling it And uh, just to repeat myself, it would be nice, it would be pretty if there were another way, but there isn't.
0: Eric, how how are you the exception in your own career, like, you know, in terms of the effort, in terms of going above and beyond with your own, you know, your writing and and the marketing of your books?
1: Well, I would say in a lot of different ways, but I'll give one simple example. And I call it internally, hit reply. And what I mean by that is, if someone gives me something I want, most people stop there and and hit reply and say, thank you. I hit reply and ask for more. So if someone wants to publish a book of mine, I hit reply and say, wonderful. Thank you so much. By the way, I have another book. And would you be interested in it? Now, many creative folks, can only can barely hit reply and say thank you. And it would be exceptional if they could hit reply and say thank you so much. Can I also have X, Y, and Z? I'll tell you a quick little story. Um, I still write fiction, and over the years, I've written novels that have not made it into the world. And so um, recently, a publisher wrote to me, and we agreed that he would publish one of my novels, which is lovely. (laughs) And so I did reply, and I said, thank you so much. By the way, let's do eight novels rather than one. (laughs) And he wrote back, and he said, okay. Oh,
0: nice. That's Great. great.
1: You can't have that experience without asking for it. Uh, let me, let me leave that there as one of the ways I take my, my own advice. (laughs) Oh, that's,
0: that's excellent. So knowing that many artists will, will experience at least one period of depression in their lives, possibly more. And we're talking about not, not necessarily like biochemical, but, but existential depression. Um, is there, do you give people sort of a grieving quote, like feeling sorry for yourself period and then okay, time's up. Got it. Got to stop. Like I could, like I could take it away from them somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but allow them maybe to wallow, you know, in this culture too, the Western culture, it's so much about being the alpha, whatever, and, and, and not showing any signs of weakness. And if if someone's able to just say, okay, I'm going to give myself how, you know, a little bit of time to kind of throw a pity party, but then come out of it. Is that something that works where we can kind of say, all right, I'm going to be defiant and angry and and not want to do this anymore and then go, you know what, I think I realize where maybe my mistake was and I'm going to come back up.
1: Absolutely. And what what I ask a person in that position is, how much time do you want? (laughs) I want to know. You know, if you want the weekend, you've got it. You (laughs) want three days? I'm not so sure about that. You want four days? Absolutely not. Huh so absolutely and one of we have to feel feelings you get a reject your writer you get a rejection email you have to feel the feeling but you want to get over the feeling as fast as you can not too fast not unrealistically fast not crazy fast but fast and so this is exactly the way i'll talk to a client absolutely you know have a pity party for as long as you like just how long is that (sighs) How long would you like? And by Sunday evening, what do you want to do to get started again? To get up again? That's all you get.
0: Wow. So it's almost like an unwritten contract. Like, okay, you have X amount of days to feel sorry for yourself, but then after that, the grieving period is over and it's back to work kind of thing?
1: That's right, because people know they shouldn't go past a certain point. They kind of know what what's what's legit and what's completely necessary even if that's the right word. And and when they've moved from actual grieving to something else, to now holding a pessimistic view of the universe or feeling like life is a cheat or some moving to some other place which is which they themselves don't want to remain in.
0: Interesting. Do you think some artists though, they almost enjoy holding that badge of, of being wounded because you know, we see a lot of people that have either passed on or are still relevant today. And a lot of teenagers 20, 30 years later look up to those individuals because they have that angst. And we can all identify with feeling like the world is against us, whether it is or not. Do you think some people yeah. love to hold on to that badge of I'm wounded? I, I, I'm not sure
1: if, if love, love to hold on to it <laughs> is exactly the way I would say it. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a little hard to shed, and it, it's in a way sometimes comfortable. That is, it may be easier to hold on to your grievance and your sadness than to go get yet another set of headshots and go look for representation all over again. It may be easier to to feel down than to get up and fight again. So I'm not sure they're loving it, but they may find it easier than getting back up on their feet. I think that we don't understand the extent to which people do hold on to their grievances, engage in revenge fantasies, are in their heads a lot of their time, a lot of the time, in some down place that they can't quite shake. I wouldn't say they love being there, but I, but there is some, something comforting and familiar about staying there that uh, sometimes a person can't shed.
0: So let's suppose someone's on maybe more of an upswing, they're more stabilized, and they're ready to create again. Um, you say that inspiration is less important than just showing up. Can you talk about that and, and some of the ways we put off showing up?
1: Sure. Um, Tchaikovsky has a quote I like, which is, I'm inspired every fifth day, but I only get that fifth day if I show up the other four. So I believe in inspiration, but I'm not sure we get that inspiration unless unless we're actually showing up and working on the work. The ways people, I will not say avoid, but whatever the right word is, the way people avoid getting the work done, there, there are many. One is to repeat a tactic that doesn't work, namely to stay in a certain kind of maybe state all day long. Uh, Maybe I'll practice my instrument this evening. Maybe I'll practice this instrument my evening. That almost always turns to no. That maybe almost always turns to no. By the end of the day, not only are we tired, but we're also blue because we haven't made enough meaning on that day by virtue of having stayed in that maybe place all day long. So, on a tactical level, there's nothing more important than getting to your creative work first thing each day. If, and so obviously, some things can't be done first thing <coughs> each day. You can't go make an audition happen first thing each day. But whatever's in your power to do, whether it's editing your film or what have you, it is very smart if you turn to it first thing each day. And many of the people listening to this will say, I'm not a morning person. That's not my rhythm. That's not natural for me. I understand all that. I've heard every variation of that that can be said. And nevertheless, that's still a wonderful new habit to acquire is to get to your creative work first thing each day. And there are three reasons for doing it. One is is what I've already said. Namely, you get a lot of work done. If you were to show up seven days a week to your work first thing, you'd get a ton of work done. Second, you'd have the experience of having made some meaning on that day already and the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get so depressed, you won't get so down because you've made some meaning already. And the third is something that folks don't understand very well and that is that we think during the night. Everybody knows we dream. Most people don't know that we also think during the night and we do lots of creative work during the night. But we don't get to make use of any of that if, as soon as we turn to the new day, all of that vanishes. That great conversation that we had between Mary and John in our film just vanishes once we turn to the new day. So if we turn to our work first thing, we get to make use of our sleep thinking in a very profound way. So, to to make this long answer short, there are many reasons to institute a morning creativity practice if you don't do that already.
0: We interviewed a a gentleman uh, in a a written interview um, named Jeffrey and he did a documentary uh, about mysophonia, the the people that are very sensitive to sound and one thing I asked him was uh, something that someone told him that really stood out and his friend recommended that he become comfortable with being uncomfortable and that's quote really stuck with me. Uh, Do you think a lot of artists are afraid of even praise? We all know people are afraid of, of criticism, but do you think it's uncomfortable for a lot of artists to receive praise?
1: It is indeed. And, it, and, and in major part, it's because they don't know how to respond. And I teach all my clients to say thank you. <laughs> to figure out how to put a period at the end of that thank you. Most creative folks think they have to say more than that. They have to kind of recapitulate their whole life's journey or something in that moment. All you have to do is say thank you. To the to the bigger question there of tolerating discomfort, I think that's really an important point. Many people don't get to their creative work because they're experiencing just a little anxiety about going into the unknown. Not a ton of anxiety, but just enough to prevent them from actually going and doing their work. So they need some decent anxiety management strategies for themselves, just something simple like a breathing exercise or something that can help them get to their work, can help them break through resistance. But a second kind of uncomfortableness is, is while you're doing your work, what very often happens, I think every creative person recognizes what I'm about to say, and that is you go into the trance of working, sometimes called flow, and you just kind of vanish. You just do your work very nicely without thinking about anything. And then a truck rumbles by or your cat walks by or something happens and you come out of that state of concentration, that state of flow, and it's often very hard to get back to work because that initial tendril of anxiety arises again. We feel a little discomfort, little agitation, and we run away. So it's very important to have have an anxiety management strategy available for that state, that moment where we come out of flow and are tempted to flee the encounter, tempted to run away. If we have some mechanism, some technique, some strategy to stay put, we're going to double our output because in addition to that first flow state, we're going to get at least another flow state if we can just stay put long enough.
0: What are some common mechanisms that you could recommend?
1: The simplest is a little deep breathing. That's been known for thousands of years as a relaxation technique. Another one is a cognitive technique, namely to think of thought that serves you, which could be something as simple as, no, I'm not running, or no, I'm still fine, or I'm fine here, or some conscious utterance of the fact that you're aware that you may want to run, but you're not going to. So a breathing technique is possible. A cognitive technique is possible. A relaxation technique is possible, like just rubbing your shoulder. I mean, it's odd to say, but just rubbing your shoulder may allow you to stay put and not run away. Actors often learn something called discharge techniques, that is, physical ways of getting rid of the anxiety that's building up. Physical way can be just taking a little walk around your chair or silently screaming, making a big screamy face and letting the anxiety out that way. So there are a lot of techniques. I think I have maybe 20 techniques in my book, uh, Mastering Creative Anxiety, and then I have another book called Performance Anxiety. So, so there are a ton of techniques available. Typically a creative person does not manage to own any of these techniques. They hear about them. They hear about this anxiety management technique or that one, but they don't actually practice one and own it and have it available to them when they're actually feeling anxious. Just parenthetically, a lot of the folks I work with may have a meditation practice or a yoga practice or something else that keeps them calm during the yoga or during the meditation, but it doesn't necessarily keep them calm when they're going to an audition. So what you want are tactics that actually work when your anxiety is at your highest, not when you're already calm. Most most creative folks don't have an anxiety management technique that actually works for them.
0: Eric, we talked about, um, when someone does praise you, just thank you and then period and being comfortable with that. On the flip side, you know, we're in this new age where people can put comments and tweet you and, and all of that. And I know back in, I think it was 2009, I watched an interview with uh, writer, John Updike and the person called in and, and just flat out said, I don't like your books at all. And I think your stories and, and he handled it so beautifully. He deflected it. He laughed. Yeah. How can one graciously deflect criticism because i know i we're, we're, i'm sure maybe he didn't really feel that way or maybe he did but he did it in such a way that was so graceful that the other person really kind of showed who they were and he remained <laughs> i mean it was it was quite a
1: comment because, but I'm laughing because uh, uh, as i as i mentioned my daughter has a book coming out and she's writing she's blogging for psychology today and oh uh, some of her blogs have had as many as 300,000 views or 500,000 views. So she sent me an email last year sometime when she started blogging. She she said with an exclamation point, I have haters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's almost actually a compliment because you know then you're actually creating a ripple in the world. You have to hold it that way. And whether you take it as a compliment,
1: you have to grow a thick skin. I did a whole book on this called Toxic Criticism about how to not all criticism gets under our skin. It's funny how how life operates. Sometimes somebody can say something very harsh to us, and it doesn't register. And then the next person can say something very mild, and it does register. So you never can know which thing is going to get under your skin, but you need tactics for dealing with those things which get under your skin. I'm guessing that very little could get under Updike's skin anymore. Very little can get under my skin. I write in controversial areas. I write about, you know, atheism and critical psychiatry and all kinds of things that get me haters. Sure. And I, I know what people are going to say, and I don't really care. Huh. But that's a long journey to not caring. And every once in a while, something will still get under my skin, and then I have to temporize. I have to... Walk around the lake, so to speak, and just let it let it dissipate. You don't want there, you don't want to hit reply. You absolutely <laughs> never want to enter into conversation with a hater, never in a million years. It wastes your time and it gets you embroiled in something that's of absolutely no use to you. So I guess my headline for this would be to be mature in your understanding that you know, if you if it's in your own body where you want drama and histrionics and stuff, this is going to be a great opportunity for you to get some drama in your life is to start fighting with your haters. <laughs> but it's not going to serve you. Those are not dramas that are going to serve you. Or
0: try the Abe Lincoln approach, just write a letter but don't send it.
1: And I, I mm-hmm. actually describe, I call it the dear critic letter. I describe that oh. in the Toxic Criticism book. I think that's a smart um, tactic to write that letter and not send it. The reason I think that that tactic is so wise is that there's something in the enterprise of writing that letter where, in the beginning, you're just it's just one expletive deleted after another. You're just railing at the critic. But as you work on that letter, often you'll come to some realization about some truth in what the critic has said. That is, you may end up with a little bit of actual learning, a little bit of self-awareness, because not everything a critic says is wrong, or mean-spirited. Sometimes critics have things to say that would mm, be good if we could hear. So my basic orientation is, A, ignore the criticism, but B, while you're ignoring it, just out of a corner of one eye, see if there's something there that maybe you need to know about.
0: Now You've talked about the the, the busy mind, the monkey mind, and that it prevents a lot of artists from actually creating because they don't they're so busy thinking about what's on Twitter and, and, oh, should I check my Facebook status or what? where do I have to go to pick up this or that, that they don't actually quiet it to, to get to creating. Can you talk about how to quiet it and, and how we're even more distracted today than probably ever before?
1: Yeah. Cognitive therapists have a simple three-step procedure for doing that kind of quieting or reducing the first is to actually hear what you say to yourself. A lot of the things that we say, we only half hear or don't hear at all, because we're defensive creatures, and often we don't want to even hear what we're say, what we're thinking. So the, the first step is to actually hear our own thoughts. The second is to dispute those utterances that don't serve us. And I, I want to come back to that in a second. And the third is to substitute more affirmative language or more positive language. So. That's pretty simple to say and actually pretty simple to do, to to hear and dispute and substitute. What's harder is to get the following idea clearly in mind and that is to only think thoughts that serve you. And by that I mean the truth or falsity of a thought isn't relevant. We get held hostage by true thoughts because we think, wow, since it's a true thought, I have to countenance it. I have to believe it since it's true. Let me give you an example. You walk into a bookstore and you say, wow, there are a lot of writers in the world. That's a true thought that doesn't serve a writer to think. It's true, but not useful. Many of the thoughts a creative person is thinking are true, but not useful. They're thinking about the competition, difficulties, what have you. If you can train yourself to say, wow, that's a true thought, but it doesn't serve me to think it, then you can really reduce your, over time, you can reduce your distress a lot and even start to extinguish those thoughts so that when you walk into a bookstore, you don't say to yourself, wow, there are a lot of writers. You say to yourself, hmm, I wonder what hasn't been covered in this bookstore that I can write about. That is, you start to think differently about life and about your life as a creative person by virtue of the fact that you're no longer thinking thoughts that don't serve you.
0: Excellent. Eric, how much do family of origin issues play out into how an artist views his or her work? Let's say that their familiar role is, is one of the golden child where they can do nothing wrong and everything's, you hear angels in the background, or, or the opposite, where they're the family scapegoat and nothing's ever good enough. How much does that family label place on their output and how they view their creativity?
1: a ton, and it's not really just the label, it's the way um, those, trauma sounds like a large word to use for these things, but I think it's a fair word, the way those early traumatic experiences still exist in our being somewhere. So if, uh, there are all kinds of, there are different kinds of examples. Um One kind of example is the family where somebody where one of the parents or even somebody more distant than a parent, an uncle, was a famous artist that The child in that family often has a terrifically difficult time getting on with their creative work. They often go into the creative arts and then there's there's something tremendously difficult about having had somebody famous in the family. And I I think anybody who knows the Hollywood world would know how that works and why so often the children of celebrities end up with their addiction problems and their depression problems and their suicide problems and what have you. So there's something very burdensome about fame in the family, success in the family. Just as burdensome or more or differently burdensome, is being um, chastised and denigrated and minimized your whole childhood. And that happens to an awful lot of children. Sometimes it's mean-spirited on the parents' part. Sometimes it's more inadvertent. But whether it's inadvertent or mean-spirited, it's very hard for that child to get over that over time. A typical manifestation of that will be having a million ideas for things, but not being able to complete any of those ideas always having incomplete work scattered around the apartment, so to speak. So we're on a gigantic subject, but the headline is family of origin issues really do matter.
0: Well, as we wrap up, I understand you have a new book coming out. It's called The Future of Mental Health. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, it is out now, actually, okay. and um, it's out in many different ways, including in an audio book. So if any of your listeners like audiobooks And the subtitle is Deconstructing the Mental Disorder Paradigm, and by that I mean most folks don't understand to what extent the whole idea of mental disorders is a flawed idea. That it's actually just a certain kind of label and a certain kind of interaction that happens between a suffering person and a, so to speak, uh, mental health professional. So in this book, I try to do the work of deconstructing that paradigm of explaining to the reader. And this will sound funny, and they're going to have to read the book to really understand it. Explain to the reader how there's no such thing as depression or schizophrenia or the other labels that exist. There are experiences like despair and hearing voices. There are lots of experiences, but the labels that get associated with those experiences are just labels that folks sitting around a table decide to impose around a set of experiences. And what flows from that imposing are so-called psychiatric medication, which are not really drugs, but merely chemicals with strong effects. So you can tell that I'm saying a big thing in a mouthful. Um, What I would recommend to folks is that they just go visit Amazon and read some of the reviews of the book the future of mental health and see if the book seems interesting to them.
0: That's fascinating. Is that because uh, the DSM, I don't know, five or whatever, has now talked about a spectrum rather than these labels of, well, this person's this and that, but there's more like this continuum where they fall on different scales? What
1: what you're saying is interesting because that's how many people today um, look at the DSM as maybe flawed in certain respects but probably basically okay but the headline is it's completely not okay. Huh. The DSM is, a, is essentially a fraudulent document, and there are many many proofs of that and many explanations of that as to why it came into being in the 1950s and how it's been um, supported over the years um, as uh, the way to go, so to speak, but it's, it's really not a legitimate document at all.
0: Well, as we as we end uh, our podcast today, anything you'd like to tell to our listeners? Anything you'd like to say? Thank you for your time. This has been wonderful.
1: No, nothing in particular. Obviously, I've done many different books. So depending on, you know, a person's particular issues, uh, if addiction's the issue, uh, I have a book called Creative Recovery. That's probably the right book. If it's anxiety, I have a couple of those books. If it's depression, I recommend The Van Gogh Blues or a book called Rethinking Depression. So I guess my, my last word would be just to come visit me at ericmazel.com and see what I do.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed uh, watching your videos online with other interviewers. I want to check out more of your books, and, and I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, Thank, thank you, you, Eric. Beautiful conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Take care now. Okay. Right. Take appreciate care. It. Thank you.